What a joy it is to be here this morning. What a joy it was to have the Harvest Kids in our worship this morning. Amen. I want to start things off this morning with some good old-fashioned movie quotes, such as, all you have to do is believe, then you will see everything. It's from the Lego movie. The only way to achieve the impossible is to believe it is possible. Alice in Wonderland. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. Cinderella. All it takes is faith and trust and a little bit of pixie dust. Peter Pan. You know the thing with these quotes, and as, as the rest of our culture proclaims, they almost get it right. Almost. They talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, they talk about having faith. And we see that in our movies, in our books, in our music, in our culture at large. And that's something that the Bible talks about. But in these quotes, there's either one no object to the faith, or two, the wrong object to their faith. They either put their faith in the wrong thing, or they put their faith in faith. There's no object. What's wrong with that? Well, in our study in Mark, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, and we've looked at what the kingdom of God is. It's Jesus' rule and reign, and it's happening right now in the hearts of Christians. And one day, it will be a literal kingdom. And for the past couple weeks, we've looked at what the kingdom of God does. It undoes evil. Today, I want to ask a question. What is our response to the kingdom of God? How should we respond to the kingdom of God that right now rules in our hearts, one day will rule literally and undoes evil? What do we do about that? Well, the proper response to the kingdom of God is simply faith. To that we should ask, what is faith? A couple of weeks ago, I told you that faith is confidence and commitment. It's saying to Jesus, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going to happen. I simply trust you. You know, the book of Hebrews gives us a definition of faith. Hebrews 1.11 reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. That is, the God-given assurance that he's going to work things out. It's the conviction that, of what is not seen. What's not seen? How God's going to work it out. That's what's not seen but it's still trust that he is going to work it out. That's faith. How do we respond to the kingdom of God? We respond to the kingdom of God by faith. But what does that look like? How do I know that I am acting in faith? That's what I want to address this morning. I want to share with you three characteristics of faith from Mark 5, 21 through 43. So if you're ready, say go. 
Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd was following him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for, for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Here's your first point this morning from our text. Faith takes action. Faith takes action. You may, remember, you may remember that last week we saw Jesus and he was in the country of the Gerasenes. He was in Gentile country and he did a marvelous miracle there of casting out a legion of demons from the man. But he leaves that area, implored by the people of the Gerasenes to leave, and he comes back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're not told exactly where he landed. Presumably he's back near Capernaum where he's been. And the text tells us he's beside the sea, and as always, there's a crowd. And here comes a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. Now, being a ruler of the synagogue, that's probably meant that he was a lay leader who did administrative duties. He did administrative duties for the local synagogue. He looked after the building. He supervised the worship, those kinds of things. He wasn't a priest. However, he would have probably been heavily influenced by priests. So you think about that and where Jesus is in relation to the religious leaders of the day. For Jairus to come to Jesus, this was likely a bold move. And he falls at Jesus' feet. He's disregarding the crowd. He's disregarding his dignity and he begs for help. This is a desperate man. A desperate man. He implores Jesus to come. His daughter is at the point of death. And who in this room would not do the same? Our children are precious to us. And if one of them was sick and we knew of someone who could help, would we not do the same? Jairus is desperate as any one of us would be. And here he demonstrates great faith. Notice what he says to Jesus. My little girl is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. There's no doubt in those words. There is faith in those words. If you come lay your hands on her, she will be well. He trusts that. He is demonstrating great faith. He's heard the stories. Jesus' fame has spread everywhere. And quite possibly, against his religious and political beliefs, he goes to Jesus, begging him to heal his daughter. And how does Jesus respond? with the same compassion that we have seen all through the study of Mark. He goes with the man. Now the text tells us that a great crowd followed along thronging Jesus. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. You may remember back in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus was by the sea, the crowd pressed in upon him to the point that he was concerned of being crushed. Jesus is following Jairus and the crowd is thronging him and amid all of this activity, 
we are introduced to another character, an unnamed woman. Now, once again, if you'll notice from the layout of the text, Mark utilizes a writing technique that's called the sandwich method. We've seen this before, where Mark will introduce a topic, and then sandwiched in between that topic is another topic, another story. He comes back to the original topic at the end. Why is he doing this? Whenever Mark is doing this, what he's doing is he's connecting two stories with the same point. He's connecting both of these stories with the same point. We've been talking about what the kingdom of God does. And we've seen the kingdom of God calm a storm. We've seen it set a man free from multiple demons. Now we're going to see Jesus perform two miracles that by human standards are impossible. The kingdom of God is about to do the impossible. But before we get there, let's dive in a little deeper and look at the background of this woman. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Now this issue of blood is likely some kind of menstrual disorder. And it had lasted for 12 years. And no doubt this was physically detrimental to her health. No doubt that she would have been unhealthy. But you know, there's something else going on here that we might miss. She would have been constantly unclean. Leviticus 15 the law states that during a woman's menstrual cycle, she is deemed unclean. And let's address what that means. It's not like, you know, I worked out all day in the sun and I need a shower. That's not what we're talking about here. Being unclean in the biblical sense relates to a ceremonial designation. One could become, they could be designated unclean. If they did certain actions, for instance, touching a dead body or some other foul thing, they would be deemed unclean. Now, being unclean does not mean a person has sinned. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. Being unclean does not mean a person has sinned. What it means is that they are temporarily unfit for corporate worship. They have to cleanse themselves. They have to go through some bathing, a bathing process. They have to have a period of time before they're clean again. They would have had to have remained outside the city, and they were forbidden to touch anyone because they would contaminate that person. So let's say if you had become unclean in this day, let's say you had to remove the dead body of a friend or relative, and that rendered you unclean. You would have to go through cleansing rituals. You would not be allowed to be in society for touching this dead person, and this would last for seven days in this case. You'd have to wash on the third day. You'd have to wash on the seventh day before you could come back into society. And that was a pretty steep regulation, the touching of a dead body. There were other unclean situations that weren't as steep, but that's the way this one was. And you might think to yourself, why? Just go wash your hands and you're good to go, right? Well, the ultimate purpose behind the idea of being clean or unclean was to demonstrate how man related to God. Being unclean, though I said it doesn't necessarily mean a person has sinned, it still represents what sin does. It separates 
us from God. Unclean is spiritual representation of our condition before God and the need for cleanliness in order to approach God. So come back to this woman. For her, she would have been constantly unclean. She would have been ostracized. She would have been unable to attend corporate worship. And it goes even deeper than that. This condition had lasted 12 years, probably starting around the time that she had reached puberty. So it's likely that she's never been married. In this culture, no man would want to marry a woman who was constantly unclean. And no man would want to marry a woman who could not bear children. And it gets even worse than that as the text tells us that she had endured much under the physicians. She'd spent all she had and the situation had only gotten worse. What do we have here? We have a desperate woman. The contrast between Jairus and this woman is significant and yet the similarity is astounding. Jairus is named. The woman is not. Jairus is a well-to-do, prominent figure. She's a nobody. Jairus is honored. She's ostracized. They are both desperate. Both, in this story, ignore social fallout just to get to Jesus. Jairus, being a ruler of the synagogue, is likely risking losing face with the religious crowd by going to the one that they are plotting against, you may remember. The woman, by law, was supposed to avoid crowds and specifically to not touch anyone lest she make them unclean. No one can help Jairus' daughter except Jesus. No one can help this woman except Jesus. Jairus came to Jesus and so did this woman. Both exercise faith. Faith takes action. Faith is not something we simply claim, but we never act upon. Real faith takes action. For instance, if you believe that crossing the street is dangerous, you're going to look both ways before you do that. That's the action. Faith takes action. And we see that demonstrated here in our passage. But you might think to yourself, of course, they're desperate. They go to Jesus because they have no other choice. What about us? What about us when we're not desperate, how do we exercise this kind of faith if we're not in a desperate situation? Said another way, what role does faith play in everyday life? I think a lot of times our days kind of run on autopilot. You know, we do family, we do work, we do school, we do whatever's in your daily schedule. And in most of that, you're probably not crying out to God. You're probably not saying, oh, God, help me drive my car. Probably not saying that to yourself. So what role does faith play in our everyday lives? I believe faith plays its major role in our attitude. Sometimes the action we take is simply choosing the right attitude. What kind of attitude? An attitude that is aware of its total dependence on God. To act in faith in our everyday lives, we should have an attitude that depends on God for strength and wisdom for everything. And how do I know if I'm doing that? How do I know if my attitude is one of dependence and therefore faith? I listened to the John Piper podcast this week called Ask Pastor John, 
And he deals with this question. And here's a direct quote from that podcast. Acting by faith means that, we, we, that what we do is shaped by the word of God. How we do it is in the power of God. And the aim in doing it is the glory of God. That is how we act in faith every day, no matter what we're facing. Everything from the big things, such as taking a new job, moving, dating, raising children, to the little things, like what I choose to eat, the words I choose to say, or how I drive my car, all of that should be shaped by the word of God, executed in the power of God, with the aim to glorify God. We should have an attitude of dependence, which is faith. The daily actions I do, I do out of relying on God's word, his power, and seeking glory. That's how we execute faith in our everyday lives. Now, what about the big things? What about when we are the desperate ones? What happens when something crazy is going on or when life comes to a screeching halt? What do we do then? Well, this dependent attitude still applies. It still applies in those situations. And think about it. Sometimes during the big things of life, the only thing you can do, the only action you can take is to trust the Lord. When life is threatened, when income is lost, when governing agencies move in a direction that is scary, sometimes the only action we can take is trust in God's control. That's the attitude of dependence. But sometimes, our faith should take more action. Sometimes it should be more than simply having the right attitude, although that's where we should start. When a child is disobedient, I can't have the mere attitude of, well, God's in control. No, God has put that child in my care and expects me to discipline. God has placed my wife in my care and expects me to love and protect her. God has called me to himself and expects me to develop a relationship with him through reading his word and prayer. God has placed people in my life who are lost and he expects me to reach out with the gospel. These things require action. What does that look like? Dependence on God, just like we've been saying, and then taking the steps necessary to do what he's called me to do. Faith takes action. Sometimes it's just the attitude Sometimes it's the attitude and more. Faith takes action. Here's your second point this morning. Faith fights against fear. Faith fights against fear. Follow along with me in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. The woman has just come up 
behind Jesus and touched his garment. We're told, look back at verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She believed simply touching Jesus' garment would heal her and it did. But then we're told in verse 30 that Jesus felt it. He perceived that power had gone out to heal this woman. I don't even know what that means. I have never had power come out of me to heal someone. I get this picture in my head of the, the plasma balls in the 80s that were real popular. You know, they were as a glass sphere with plasma energy dancing inside of it, and if you touched it, that energy would concentrate on where you touched. Is that kind of what it was like? Jesus' power is radiating through him, and when she touched him, it just concentrates? I have no idea. Somehow, he recognizes what has happened, and Jesus turns and says, who touched my garments? And then the disciples, you got to love them, because they're like, what are you talking about, man? Everyone's touching you. But Jesus knows there's something different about this. This is the touch of someone who had faith that a mere touch could heal. And if you picture this in your mind, Jesus is walking and the crowd is thronging him and then just suddenly he stops and he looks around and he says, who touched me? Now Jesus being God, he knew what was going on. We read earlier in Mark that Jesus perceived the thoughts of the Pharisees. So why is he asking this question? He knows what's going on. Well, he's not asking this question out of ignorance. He's asking this question to draw her out. And God does that sometimes. Remember in the garden? After man's sin, what does God say? Where are you? He knew where they were. He was trying to draw them out, and that's exactly what's happening here, and it works. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, why would Jesus do this to her? This almost seems cruel, exposing her issue in front of this whole crowd, causing her to fear and tremble. Perhaps she's afraid that she's going to be in trouble for touching someone because she's not supposed to do that. But that's not Jesus' intention. His intention here is to affirm her faith. He says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You can hear the tenderness in his voice. He is affirming her faith. You did the right thing is what he's saying. Your faith has made you well. That word for well there is, in the, is the Greek sozo, and it can mean healed or saved. And the use of this word suggests that the woman, by demonstrating faith in Jesus, was not only healed of her disease, but possibly even received salvation a deeper healing. And I wonder this morning if there are some here in need of that deeper healing. How many times have you heard about Jesus but never responded? Is there a tug on your heart this morning that you need Jesus as your Savior? We respond again in faith. We repent, that is, we apologize to him of our sins and we embrace his saving work by faith. And if that's you this morning, don't leave here without catching me, catching one of our elders. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to receive Jesus Christ by faith. But in our story here, he speaks to the woman. He does this miracle 
that no physician could do. Remember the context, the greater context of the story. We're talking about what the kingdom of God does. It undoes evil. We've seen Jesus calm a storm. We've seen Jesus cast out multitude of demons. Now he heals this woman from a 12-year disease, and by healing her, whom no one else could heal, Jesus is reversing the irreversible. Her sickness, which would have gone beyond detriment to her health to being ostracized by her people, has been reversed. She has been made whole. And that's what the kingdom of God does. But if we expand the context to include the whole of the book of Mark, what we're seeing again is the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is God and he has come to serve. But Jesus is not done yet. We don't get to see this woman's response because the story returns back to Jairus' daughter. Messengers come to deliver the awful news that Jairus' daughter is dead. And then the messengers say this. Why trouble the teacher any further? By asking this, they automatically assume that Jesus, as powerful as he has shown himself to be, cannot do anything about the dead. This is doubt. This is disbelief. And let me point out that had Jairus agreed with the messengers and just dismissed Jesus, the story would stop here. But verse 36 tells us, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Faith fights against fear. The woman, though fearful of what she had done, told all and she was commended. Jairus, who could have responded in fear and despair, must have listened to Jesus because in verse 37, Jesus continues and says, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They leave that place with just those three disciples and Jairus and they go on. Faith fights against fear. In each of the stories we've seen from the end of chapter four, fear has been a common theme. The disciples feared the storm. The people of the Gerasenes feared Jesus. There's fear and faith expressed in this woman, and likely there's fear in Jairus. Jesus says simply, do not fear, only believe. Now, fear is a major issue when it comes to life. We've talked about this the last several weeks. We fear challenges. We fear people. We fear fear. We fear all kinds of things. And that fear can be an expression of doubt. When we are operating from fear, we doubt God's ability or God's presence or both. He calls us not to fear. But there's more than that. He says, don't be afraid. And he doesn't leave it at that. He says, only believe. Somehow, Jesus' words assured Jairus. They went on to Jairus' house. Did Jairus know what Jesus was going to do? No, he did not. He simply fought his fear and followed Jesus. Harvest Decatur, our fears are many. 
Each of us have different things we're afraid of. A couple of weeks ago, I put a list up on the screen of our common fears, and it contained things like this. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of not being accepted. Fear of failure. Fear of the future. You know your fears. What's the cure? Faith. Faith. But not just random faith. The world preaches a similar message, just have faith. But they have either a silly or no object to their faith. Faith in silly things isn't any good. Faith for faith's sake is just ludicrous. But when the object of our faith is Jesus, faith works. Take your situation. Everyone in this room is facing something that causes fear. Think about it for just a minute. Call it to your mind. Now, how can you respond in faith? It may be, as we said earlier, that all you need is an attitude of dependence. You may not see the way forward, but let me assure you, Jesus does. He already has it. All he wants from you is trust. And of course, your situation may be one where faith is required, yes, but God wants you to do something with that faith. He wants you to depend on him and then take the next step. What is that next step? Do you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? He gets to a point in the movie where he's standing on the edge of a sheer cliff and he has to have faith and take a step forward. And only then does his foot land on the bridge that was concealed and he could walk across in safety. In a very similar way, that's what God calls us to do. Have faith and take that step. And he's going to catch you. And you're going to walk across in safety. Your situation may require a similar type of faith. Have faith in Jesus. Take a step in the unknown. Fight against your fear with faith. And remember those words. Five words here. Do not fear. Only believe. Faith takes action. Faith fights against fear. Lastly, we're looking at characteristics of faith. Lastly, faith is rewarded. Faith is rewarded. Follow along as I read verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus comes to the house, and remember, he's only bringing with him Peter and James and John. Those were his most intimate disciples. They experienced things the others did not, and we'll see him take these three aside again. They go into the house, 
And Jesus is met with professional mourners. And this was common in biblical times. When there was a death, it was cultural to have professional mourners who would come and they would weep and they would sing laments. It was all part of their custom. And the fact that they were already at Jairus' house tells us that they had been preparing for the worst. Jairus being prominent in his position, he probably would have had quite a crowd of professional mourners. And when Jesus sees this, he asks, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And to them, this question is laughable. If you think about it, they know what death looks like. They're not confused. The mortality rate back then was a lot higher than it is in our day. Their culture was used to death. They saw it all the time. But just like the messengers that were sent from Jairus' house to tell him that his daughter is dead, there's no faith in these people. To them, Jesus is a laughingstock. Now, Jesus' words might seem strange if you stop and think about it. It doesn't even sound like he's telling the truth. She's not dead but sleeping. Why did he say that? Did Jesus actually believe that she was asleep? No. Jesus said this because he knew what he was about to do. Jesus knew his power. And his power to Jesus, death is only sleep. Because death has no power over him. Now it's interesting that after they laugh at him, he puts them out. There's no participation where there is no faith. And Jesus leads Peter, James, John, and the girl's parents to where the child was. And just as we've seen in other cases, Jesus takes the girl by the hand, there's touch involved, and he says, Talitha kumi. This was Aramaic and probably Jesus' everyday language. And Mark records these words not because there's some sort of magical power, but this is another bit of evidence that what we're seeing is from an eyewitness account. It's one of those details that's thrown into the story that gives evidence to what we're reading as an eyewitness account. The very words that Jesus used are remembered because they are attached to such an incredible miracle. Jesus says to her in verse 41, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now you think about it, that would have been something to see. That would have been astounding. What does the kingdom of God do? It undoes evil. Even death cannot overcome the kingdom of God. This shows us the limitlessness of the power of the kingdom of God. Jesus reverses the irreversible, in this case, death itself. Now, the fact that we're told that this girl was 12 years old is significant. She was old enough in this culture to get married. She may have even already been engaged. This would, of course, increase the grief because she was on the verge of living her own life when it was snuffed out. But Jesus comes, revives her, and she gets up and she walks around. Why? Because that's showing the completeness of her healing. Do you remember when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law? She was healed completely. She was healed so much that she got up and she went back to work. 
And the same thing is happening to this girl. She's brought back to life, but not in a sickly state. She comes back whole. And then Jesus said what he has said before. He charges them to tell no one. Remember, he said that with the leper many chapters ago. To tell no one about this. Of course, the leper disregarded that. And as a practical outworking, Jesus could not move about as freely as he wanted to. I think there, there might be some of that reason here why he told them to tell no one, but perhaps not because Jesus' fame has spread so far and wide that crowds are everywhere no matter what. So why did he tell them to tell no one? Well, we can only guess at this. Possibly one answer is related to his identity as the Messiah, that he didn't want the, his identity as the Messiah to get out. Not yet. It wasn't time. If his identity as the Messiah gotten out, the zealots might have come along and tried to make him king before it was time. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why he charged them. And then he tells them this, and I love this. He tells them to give her something to eat. Just shows that Jesus is concerned for her physical needs. The girl's hungry. Get her some french fries. (laughs) Faith. Jairus' faith here is rewarded, he got his daughter back. Faith is rewarded. When we step out in faith, God does reward that. Now hear me on this because I am not a name it, claim it pastor. I don't believe that you claim something in the name of Jesus and you're gonna get it. Jesus, I want that Cadillac. It's not what I'm talking about when I say faith is rewarded. Sometimes, like in the case of Jairus, what we pray for, we get. But God does not always reward us in the way we would like. He might not heal. He might take away. He might say no. Does that mean we're not rewarded? Friends, even when we ask in faith is not given to us, That does not mean that we are not rewarded. Now, that was a lot of negatives. Let me say it positively. Whatever we may ask of the Lord in faith, he will answer as he sees fit. We may be granted the rewards we hope to see from the Lord, but even if we don't, we are already given so much. You know, our very salvation is a gift beyond anything we can imagine. If we never received anything else from the Lord except our salvation, if we never had anything except the fact that our sins were forgiven and we will one day stand before him clothed in his righteousness, that, my friends, is enough. It's more than we deserve. But he has promised even more than that. He promises us himself. He says, I will be with you always. His very presence is a reward for our faith. And if I may speak personally, one of the greatest rewards of faith I have experienced is seeing how everything that happens in my life is meant for a greater purpose. Why did God, if you know anything about our story, why did God deny my wife and I from having biological children? so that he could bless us with the four adopted treasures that fill our house with love and laughter. That was not my plan. We prayed, we stepped out in faith, 
And God took us on a wild ride. And though there were at times, there were times during that that I would not want to relive, I can tell you, I would do it over again because God had a greater purpose. The difference between biblical faith and whatever kind of faith the culture promotes is that biblical faith is placed in an object, the only object that has true power, the person of Jesus Christ. We put our faith in the one who proves himself faithful, not just by the miracles he does, not just by the compassion he shows. He proves himself faithful by doing what no one else could have ever done. Jesus doesn't just reverse the irreversible by healing sickness and bringing one back from the dead. He reverses the irreversible by canceling out the curse of sin that would have doomed you and I. He is the only one who makes possible the forgiveness of sins. He is the only one who transforms our fears into faith. And he is the only one who rewards our faith in ways we could never comprehend. And the more we turn our eyes toward Jesus, the more our faith will grow. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, healer of sickness, raiser of the dead, you are God. You are Savior. In you, we put our faith. Faith for salvation and faith to live this life one day at a time. Lord, your disciples prayed long ago to increase their faith. Would you do the same in our lives? Would you help us keep trusting you no matter what we face? Help us take action when needed. Help us to ignore the many ways we are tempted to fear and simply put our trust in you. Lord, thank you for the rewards you grant us every single day. And we look forward to the great reward of one day seeing you face to face. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.